Well, good evening. Had a chance to watch uh, the Bowden Dynasty, which is uh, mostly a celebration of Florida State's uh, football history while he was there, but a lot of spiritual emphasis was in the film and a uh, very powerful story, very powerful testimony. I've been uh, privileged to sit in uh, meetings with some great men and women of God. I had the privilege of hearing Charles Greenaway preach, Bernard Johnson preach. Bernard Johnson was considered the Billy Graham of Brazil, pack out soccer stadiums back in the 60s and uh, just enormous crowds. I've been uh, to a few of Tommy Barnett's pastor schools out in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, my first trip out there, it was really kind of, they weren't, hadn't been doing this very much. I took the guy that was doing our van ministry at our church there in Jacksonville. He and I went out there, and, and uh, Bill, was, Bill was cut out of a different cloth than most people. He, he could have he lived on the land uh, killing bears and uh, trapping for food because he was just that kind of rough guy. But he loved kids, and what a... You know, they picked us up at the airport, and the guy that picked us up was is the most evangelist person I've ever been around in my life. He said, y'all hungry? I said, sure. He stopped at a hamburger place, and he walked around every one of those tables in that hamburger place and asking people if they knew Jesus. And that uh, he'd like to tell them about him being the Lord and Savior of his life. And I thought, well, he's just trying to show us that this is an evangelistic church. No, he was, he, they, they assigned him to us for some reason. That was, that was him. That was not a put-on. That was like not Phoenix First Assembly. But we, they had host families, and, and they took us to our room, and it was one, like, queen-size bed. And Bill looked at me and said, I've never slept with a guy before. I said, well, I hadn't either. I said, you think I like this? Well, we might swap laying on the floor. And uh, I think I blocked that out of my mind. I don't even know what we did, but, uh, you know. <laughs> but he was like, we got one bed to sleep. I said, no. <laughs> but, you know, those, those things, and we did Saturday Soul Winning Society. We did that. It was, you know, just the evangelistic, just being around people. Tommy Barnett, Tommy Barnett had this to say, you know, about people being reluctant to talk to me about the Lord. He says, well, you, you know, people say, you can lead a, a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. He says, I can. I'll throw a salt tablet in that old horse's mouth. <laughs> and he said, all we got to do is get a little salty in our life and make people just a little bit thirsty for what we're offering them. And isn't that what Jesus said? You know, you're the salt, but if you lose that saltiness, we're not going to create thirst in anybody. But he was at, he was like, there's no excuse for us not to be doing. And I was thinking about this. Um, is it important to pray along with the will of God? How's likely your prayer is going to be answered if you're not praying according to God's will? I mean, just ask yourself a few questions. Because I went through Romans 12, 1 and 2, just part of this, this tablet. And by the way, we have some up here. If you have not gotten one of these, we have them up here for you to take one and start journaling and writing on. But um, 
I found 10 different ways to pray out of Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's all according to all of those steps is I know God wants this. I know God wants this. You know, that, that's one thing to say. How do we know the will of God? What does God want? Does God want us to be worshipers? Does God want us to love him? Does God want us to be in prayer? Does, does God want us to share who he is with other people? Does he want us to be healthy? Does he want us to be in good relationship with people? And so all these things that are factors in our lives where we work, our interaction with our family, you know, you just, just stop and ask the question, in that situation, what do I think God wants? What would God want the, the outcome of that situation to be? And then pray, pray to that end. Does God want us to be healed? I say absolutely yes, by the stripes of Jesus we're healed. So we can just go to him and say, Lord, I know... And maybe it's not going to come right now, but I do know that your purpose is for me to be at my optimum. And so I'm, I'm praying, I'm presenting myself. It's a great, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a great passage. We say, I urge you, brother, I beseech you, I, I plead with you to present what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable unto Him, which is your reasonable service. So, you know, no matter how you feel about where you're at, you're at physically, God still wants you to offer yourself to him. You know, you got all your exercise stuff and you got all your diet stuff you're going to do this year and you're going to be better. But it, how many of you know that takes, it's one day at a time. And I think some of the prayers that we need to be praying, we need to be praying every morning, every day, at least every day, if not every morning, saying, Lord, here's my life. I present my life to you for you to dwell in me and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be filled with your Spirit. That's what you want me. See, are you following me? That, that if we can say I'm praying, I know I'm praying along with what God wants for me. He wants me to be clear-minded. He wants me to be in a state of discernment. He wants me to have wisdom. He wants me to have direction. He wants me to have purpose. He wants to be clear on that. And he wants me just to belong to him and present myself to him. And say, Lord, this is your day. This is not my day. This is your day that you have given me. I want to walk in you like you want me to. I want to do everything in a responsible way and and, in a way that glorifies you. And I tell you what, it will not be hard to discern (laughs) What is not the answer to that? You know, how you handle a situation and, and uh, maybe, you know, he's like, oh, I, I handled that wrong. And we're a little bit more alert. Um, when God moves, it's because certain conditions that he just sovereignly had a hand in begins to take place. And Galatians 4.4 is one of the great verses, and, and I'm going to refer to that. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Interesting term, in the fullness of time. In other words, I don't know how your translation, but at the right time, meaning God orchestrated the calendar. He orchestrated the year, the months, the days, the minutes. 
where it, it was, Gabriel, okay, Gabriel, you can go now. You can go talk to Mary now. And now you can go talk to Joseph. You can appear to Joseph. And, and, and God is setting up. He is orchestrating this. And somewhere in Jerusalem is an, is an older woman, an elderly woman, who's been a widow for most of her life. And she is sensing that God wants her to spend all day at the temple. Fasting and praying. You see, we see Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but there's a lot of other things that's going on that's the supporting cast to that. Because it's just a few days after his birth that there's a man and a woman that's been hanging out at the temple that God has them there just for that moment. And she's, been, she's a prayer warrior. He, he's raised up. I wonder how many move, mighty moves of God has taken place and there's been Annas behind it that nobody sees. The reason why we know that, that Anna was there is that Luke fills us in. You know, that could have happened and not been recorded. But it's recorded in that way. We know that God was speaking to people, not just to Joseph and Mary, not just to Zacharias and Elizabeth. He was speaking to a number of people, and included in that was Anna. Also, there was Simeon. You think about what God told Simeon, that as he was advancing in age, God told him, now they... Thousands of years, they've been hearing that there's a Messiah coming. And he hears God tell him one day, you're going to see him with your own eyes. I can just picture him telling somebody that. Hey, God told me I was going to see the Messiah. <laughs> you see, the, Okay. Thinks he's going to see the Messiah. Well, he saw the Messiah. And it didn't surprise him. He was hanging out. <laughs> he was there. How, how God was talking to his people. Who knows? He just said, For the Lord told me with the, I would see him with my own eyes, and now I can go ahead and finish my journey. Because <laughs> my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. I've held him in my hands. The Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah's 900-year-old prophecy. Here he is. And so when you think about what happened at the Welch Revival and what happened at Azusa Street, and even more in our time, what happened at Brownsville, the... uh, the Kentucky revival that took place, a number of the Great Awakening in the 1700s. And I wonder just how all those pieces were fitting together with people seeking the Lord. And here's what, I'm, here's what I think in this pad, I believe, is just a little instrument. But if you are already doing some things differently than what you were doing, guess what? you're advancing to where God wants you to be. But if you just keep on doing what you have been doing, that's not advancing necessarily. All of that may be good, 
But I believe it's God's purpose for me to grow, for me to learn, for me to understand more fully, for me to dive into scriptures. Now I want to talk about just the just some things that happened in the 18th century and draw some dots here because it's interesting what happened in the great revival in England. Um, you know, right toward the end of the end of the 15th century, the pilgrims came over here, or, or uh, not that, Columbus discovered America, and right after that was the printing press. Shortly around, and, and so the printing press was developed, and then you had all of these factors that were starting to come up in France and Germany and England and Martin Luther, uh, I think it's 1512, nailed the 95 Theses on, on the uh, wall. The, and they were all like, most of them was like, have you ever read them? He was taking the Pope on. And you know, they came in, these people from Rome came in and said, we're raising money to build St. Peter's Basilica. And one of the ways we're raising money is that we're giving people passes on their sins. Or we're selling passes. It's called indulgences. And, and you, can, you can buy forgiveness ahead of it. <laughs> you, you, you can get absolution ahead of time. You can kind of buy these and you can cash them in with God. And they were selling them. That's how they were going to build St. Peter's Basilica. And, and Martin Luther says, not here, you're not. And he wouldn't allow it. And he posted these, you know, these objections to what the church was doing at the time. And if there was, if there was not some civil authorities that liked him and liked his family, he would have been done like John Huss. He'd probably be burned at the stake. But, you know, he was trying to stay in the church. He, he loved the church. He didn't, lead, he didn't hate the Catholic church. He, he loved the church. He, he had had this experience with God, and he was trying to bring reformation to the church. And they ended up uh, excommunicating him. And, and, of course, since they did that, he just got married. <laughs> he did. Yeah, I was celibate while I'm a priest, but y'all kicked me out. I'm, now I'm getting married. And he did get married. But all these things were happening, and uh, it led into a move of God outside of the Catholic Church. And, and I don't speak disparaging about the Catholic Church because I, I'm, I know Catholics over the period of my time that my life that were genuine believers, love God, born again, many of them spirit-filled. If you just Google the charismatic movement in the Catholic Church in the 1970s, you might find Notre Dame's football stadium was jam-packed with Catholics singing in tongues and parishes where the priests were anointing people with oil and praying for them to be healed and people were getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know, it was just like God was just moving because there was a hunger and thirst. So it's, it's, it doesn't matter what the label is, it's what the hunger is in people's hearts. And so there was this move of God, and, and then the Anglican church, and the, the worst thing could happen is when na- nations started having their own church, the, Ang- the Church of England, uh, Germany's church, Lutheran church, and, you know, that, that was like defeating the whole purpose of why the church didn't need to be political. But in all of that, there was this group of people. If you want to get an interesting read, research... Um, Count Zinzendorf and the Moravian people 
and they were the charismatic of their day. They were, they had a hundred year long prayer meeting nonstop as people, they had, they were committed to praying to God. They had prophecies, they had, they had supernatural things happening, miracles happening, and it was all in this enclave called Hernhut in Germany, what is today Germany. And so in uh, 1736, January of 1736, uh, an Anglican minister was on a ship coming to Georgia as a missionary to Indians primarily and to bring the gospel to the Indians of Georgia. But on that ship was also Germans known as Moravians. And on a particular day, it was a Sunday, they ran headlong into a storm, and all the passengers were down in the hull of that ship, and at one point, the swell came over the entire ship. And whatever openings and whatever cracks was in the decking and all of that, the water just started falling down on people, and there was people yelling, thinking, We've, the, the thing is sunk, we're underwater. It ripped the sail in two, and... Uh, you know, the, the only reason why we know so much about John Wesley is he journaled everything. And he wrote in his journal that day, it was the English passengers down in the bottom of that ship that were screaming. <laughs> he says, I realize that the Germans over there with their families, their kids, and they're not doing anything. They're not yelling. They're not hollering. And about noon, it quit, and he goes over, and he talks to him. He says, uh, y'all weren't afraid? No. What about your kids? They weren't afraid. No. We just, we almost sunk. This ship almost sunk out here. He says, well, none of us are afraid to die. We're, we're going to do God's service, and this is the way it goes. This is the way it goes. <laughs> well, he's like, okay. But he hung out with these people after they got to Georgia. He's like, he's kind of drawn to them. And many people believe that at this point that John Wesley wasn't even a Christian. That he, he was pressed to do something for the church. He was, he was part of the Church of England. He was an Anglican. And when he got back, it was, he only stayed there two years. And from what I understand, it, it's, it's, you know, there's different reports. But he, he, uh, one, of the, one of the stories is that he kind of like, one of the, the uh, colonists there, a woman, a real attractive woman, he, he kind of like fell in love with her. And he was going to propose to her while he's doing ministry, of course. But he felt like, well, here I came. I came as a missionary. That, that would be like I was putting that above my purposes. I'm not going to propose to her. Uh, and I'm, just, I'm not going to do that. I'll just delay it. And then when he didn't propose to her, she decided to accept the invitation of someone else's proposal. And so he warned her that he didn't think that was spiritually good for her. And, and then he wouldn't serve her communion. So he kind of wore his feelings on his sleeves and said, well, you're not taking the communion. You, you married the wrong guy. But this created such a disturbance. He, he only stayed in Georgia two years and he got on a ship, went back, January of 1738, and for two months, the man was absolutely miserable because of what happened in Georgia, but also just where his life was. And he went down on a Wednesday night to Aldersgate Church, 
And at the beginning of that service was the reading of Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And we all know that Luther became an avid lover of Romans because it opened up to him that the reality is you're not saved through the liturgy, you're not saved through the water of baptism, you're not saved by confession and absolution, you are saved by faith through the grace of God. You're justified by faith. That was his, he discovered that, and as he wrote, he was, that was like 200 years before. And Wesley's sitting there, and he puts it in his journal, my heart was, was warmed by hearing that. And right then I knew that my faith in Christ was, a, was what I was saved. Transformed his life. Well, lo and behold, one of the people he connected with was George Whitfield. And they had developed a prayer group. And these two guys were on so different ends theologically. But, you know, Whitfield was more of a Presbyterian predestination, but, but not like people believe in it today. It was a different form of it. But both of these men became firebrands in England, and there was a great awakening in England in the 1740s. And these two guys were right in the middle of it. Why was that going on? Was this just like it happened? I put the title of this, When Things Happen. Do they just happen? Or is God doing something in the midst of it? Is it, I've come to believe this. I don't believe things in my life are coincidental. Especially if I'm starting today saying, Lord, I surrender myself to you. I present myself as a living sacrifice to you. And that this day really belongs to you. I don't think there's anything coincidental. And the awakening in America in the 1700s was not coincidental. Even Jonathan Edwards and all that group was right in the middle of it. But there was people seeking God. There was, there was people going after God. There was people hungry for God. God will never be left without someone. Even though sometimes that someone thinks he's the only one like Elijah. I'm the only one. Remember that prayer he prayed in the cave? I am the only one that loves you (laughs) and that is living for you. And God had to tell him how many prophets he had that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. But he thought he was the only one. But it's the sovereignty of God. Here's the first thing I want to tell you. The, The move of God, you cannot take away the sovereignty of God when he moves. That this this is his hand. On things, so how do how do we connect to the sovereignty of God and see God do things in our lives? When do you discern that God is doing something? After it starts or before it starts? If if we say after, and probably most of will say after, we're on the wrong end of it. If we just see evidence, you see, faith is a substance of things, hope for things not seen. It's the evidence of things hoped for, of things not seen. You, you know, when you don't need faith for something you're seeing, 
And I, and I posed this question to some people uh, yesterday, I believe it was. Can you have optimism without faith? What's the basis of your optimism? Hope. (laughs) You know, our word for hope is not the same word as the biblical word for hope. (laughs) The biblical word for hope is assurance. (laughs) It's not wishing. Well, I wish God would do something here. That maybe not really is the best description of optimism. It's like, okay, we need some help here. But I'm talking about when you look at something and you sense that something is breaking and something is happening, and you believe that, the optimism comes out of our trust in the promises of God. I'm doing what God wants me to do. And my obedience is not the thing, but I'm I'm yielding myself to God and I'm believing for Him to work in a situation that I can't fix, but I can trust Him for. And I can put it at His feet and say, I believe according to your will that this is the way this should work. And I'm trusting you to work behind the scenes to bring it to that conclusion. You're the sovereign God of the universe. As we seek you, you press people. You can convict people and reprove people for their sin. People confess and repent when they're pressed under conviction. Godly sorrow works toward repentance. Repentance is not just something you say, I'm sorry, Lord, for doing that. Because in in some ways, the way people pray that is, is they can kneel down and say, Lord, I'm sorry, for the stuff I did today, and why don't I just go ahead and tell you, I'm, I'm sorry for the things I'm going to do tomorrow. Because that, that doesn't mean you're really repenting. Repentance is like, man, I am done with this behavior. I am done. I, am, I, I yield to you. You got to help me. You got you to give me strength that I can walk this out by faith. Some say Methodism was born in song. You know, one of the great things about the Welch Revival, there's so many neat, neat things. The Welch Revival only lasted about eight or nine months. And uh, Evan Roberts got his feelings hurt, and he just quit. He did. He, he, went, in, he went into isolation. He didn't want him about coming to his, his residence, and, and he was kind of like the, the, the lead person and, you know, I, get, I don't know what will happen, but he, he, just, he just quit. He went home. But, but the Welch Revival, we had people in America going over to Welch Revival, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Los Angeles. We're talking about like 19, in the early 1900s, like a year before Azusa Street broke out. And the pastor of First Baptist Church in Los Angeles went to the Welch Revival, came back and says, we're having prayer meetings. And it was one of his churches that was having prayer meetings when Azusa Street broke out. So here's the Welch Revival. Here's the interesting thing about the Welch Revival is that people would come into church and, and the police, there was no arresting of anybody. The, the, the jails were empty and, and the, the police were having direct traffic around the churches. And when the people got in, before the service was officially supposed to begin, 
They just started singing. They, they just was worshiping God. How many remember going to the, uh, the, the Georgia Dome with uh, Promise Keepers? Way before the, uh, the service even started, those men started singing. You know, it's kind of like reminding me of the stories I heard about the Welsh Revival. So here's the song, the worship. Think about this. When Methodism, when the Methodist Revival hit England and spread to America... John Wesley is supposedly preached three times, average preaching three times a day during that move of God. His brother Charles wrote over 6,000 hymns. And the neat thing about it is, <laughs> this is maybe another thing that God does. There, it wasn't typical because the, the established churches didn't like what was going on. So they banned Whitfield and Wesley from preaching in the church. So they went out where coal miners were, and they went out in the open area, and itinerant preachers and lay preachers and all of the protocols that you had to have certain degrees. You understand that Ivy League schools were started in the early 1700s to train preachers. Because it was considered preachers needed to know Greek, Latin, Hebrew, be the most educated people in the community. And here are these protocols of you got to be this and this and this. And God was raising up these voices all over England and America, itinerant preachers, lay preachers, going around preaching the gospel. And it was on. And the established churches couldn't, they tried to like, no, you can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. You have to have training and learning and all of this. And most of the songs that they were singing were sung outside because they wouldn't let them go inside. You know, where does, where does the sovereign work of God overshadow our lives? To me, I just think I can't do anything about 2016. There was, there's some neat things that happened in 2016. But I'm all for 2017. I'm all for January, and I'm all for what's left of number 11 day of January because this is the only time we have. I really believe that God is, is going to respond to people who are hungry for him and thirsty for him and seeking him and engaging him and talking to him, writing out prayers, writing out. I don't know if anybody's like, there's some, I have some quirks about myself. I talk to myself a lot and I admonish myself. And sometimes I do that. On, I, at one point, I wrote down, think, Charles, think. Think about this. <laughs> but we need, we need to know what God is saying. We need to hear the voice of the Lord. And we need to be a response. A responder to that saying Lord what, what do you want I don't listen I love Wednesday night I love church I, I would be in church we go on vacation I love church I've been able to I went to Mark Batterson's church in Washington D.C. when it was down in the uh, train depot in that theater and he wasn't even preaching that day I was like him <laughs> it was somebody else but I'm going to be in I love church but what I love about this life is that I get to have 
church every day. I get to worship. I get to talk to God. I get to hear and, and read. And, and uh, I get to play Keith Green, you know, to get me going. Uh, I get to do all of that because he's not just Sunday and Wednesday. He's every day. And if we can do that, if we can just say, Lord, I want to be right in the middle of what you want to do, and I'm, I'm ready, count me in. If, if you turn me upside down to get me ready and shaped up for what you want to do, start turning me now. Shape me and mold me, open my mind to things I need to know, and I really believe God wants to do something mighty in our lives. I know he wants to do some miracles. There's people in this room, some of you need a miracle. You need a miracle of healing. You need a miracle of a breakthrough with, with stuff that you're having to deal with. And, and you're tired. You're, you're, you're weary of dealing with it. Don't run from that. Run to God with that. Don't lock, try to lock yourself away from it because... What God wants to do is do something in the midst of it and prove himself strong to you. This is what I want us to do. I, I, I want us to just say to God this evening, Lord, I'm not going to wait for someone else to step up to the plate. I want, I want to be on the front lines of what you want to do. Put me right on the front lines even though that might be where the most intense spiritual warfare is, but that's where the victories are first learned. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, waiting for the sovereign evidence of God's work. And uh, I'd like for us just to come to the front and, and believe God and pray together and say, Lord, increase our hunger for you. Increase our thirst for your presence and for your power. And uh, we might just join hands and, and just pray for each other. This is January the 11th. Um, and, and really and truly, if you haven't gotten one of these pads, we got plenty of them. Anything that can reinforce what God is speaking to you. Uh, I, I, I don't know how many people in here are filled with the Holy Spirit, have... Um, spoken in other tongues and, and just the fullness of the Spirit, the language of the Spirit. But I can tell you this, I don't have to pray if, um, if this is God's will for you. Tell you what, let's do, let's, let's just bring this circle around here. No, no, you stay right there. The ones that are behind, I want you to come around this way. All the ones that are behind on the second row, come this way. Follow me. I want, come on this way, come on this way. Don't come on this right, this toward this. You're right, right here. You're right, right here. We're, we're going to make an oblong circle. How's that? That'll work. All right, we should have enough room down there for, for the. Look at this. This is what you call teamwork right here. <laughs> hey, Brenda. How you doing? Come on down here. Yeah. 
I know you want me to draw attention to you. You just, I'll hear about this later. Yeah. But I, I want us just to pray for each other. That, that 2017, God is just going to pour out his spirit on us and on your family. In Jesus' name. You got a prodigal in your family. God is after them. Hallelujah. Lord, we are excited about this year. And we just believe, based on your word, that people are going to get saved. Our prodigals are coming. They're already being pressed by the Holy Spirit. They're already being witnessed to by your spirit. You are the sovereign God of the universe. You respond to our prayers. You respond to our cries, Lord. You are merciful. You are patient. You are kind. You wait, Lord, much better than what we wait. But you have a plan to bring in the harvest. And I ask you, Lord, to make us all ready to enter into the harvest fields. That the Lord of the harvest would thrust laborers into ripened fields. Into families that are ripe. They're ready. They've been under a siege. They want an out. They They want relief, Lord. And the gospel is relief. The gospel is good news that they don't have to carry these burdens. They don't have to fix what's wrong in their soul. That's why you hung on the cross. That's why you was raised from the dead. And you did that so people could have a transformation in their lives. We pray, Lord, for families, and we pray for healing in children that need a dramatic healing, in parents or spouses that need uh, backs healed and shoulders healed and, and ailments that have been chronic ailments, Lord that you'd break that infirmity off of them and that you would bring mighty healing and restoration to our bodies. These bodies are your temples. And you said you want them to belong to you. And they do belong to you. So we just ask for healing to come and rest upon us. This evening, Father, and a quickening of our minds to hear your voice above all the voices that we hear, of all the noise around us, Lord. I pray that you'll teach us how to be quiet and know that you're God. How to quieten ourselves down and just wait in your presence and soak up your presence, Lord. We really need you. We need your truth resonating in our soul. We don't need our ideas to be what's directing us. We need your truth, Lord, to direct our decisions. Those who are battling a financial situation, help them, Lord, to have wisdom as to how to put that at your feet and to give them counsel as to how they can uh, take steps to get them going in the right direction, to honor you, Lord. You, you respect and you bless those who honor you. And you said the, the vats will flow and the barns will be filled because we decided to honor you. Lord, may your covering be upon our, our children and our grandchildren tonight. We ask, Lord, that you would rescue their future, rescue their, their days, Lord, that what the enemy has conspired against them will not work. We come against the adversary of our souls, and we, as Michael the angel, say, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord stands against your efforts to divide a family, to divide a marriage. The Lord is those is the one who stands on our side. And Lord, in that strength, may this year be a phenomenal year. And as we 
head forward, we'll maybe mark this night as a night we took a stand. We took a stand of faith, not just, Lord, I hope it happens, but we're just believing God is going to. And uh, because your word is our anchor. Your word is our truth.